Our guest this week is Michael J. Bailick, Ph.D., Vice President of Botanical Science and Curator of the Institute of Economic Botany at the New York Botanical Garden. Dr. Bailick's specialty is ethnobotany, and he has conducted fieldwork in medicinal and food plants with indigenous cultures in 56 biologically diverse regions around the world. His new book is Rodale's 21st Century Herbal. He's told me I can call him Mike. So, Mike, welcome to Ken Drew's Real Dirt. Great to be here. I know you've been traveling, and I know that you're world-weary, and you probably travel a lot. I'm going to ask you the first question, which is probably one that you get all the time. Do you like herb, or do you like herb? Uh, herb. I prefer herb, but uh, anything that's spelled H-E-R-B, I think, works for me. <laughs> I, I like herb, too. For listeners who may not be familiar with the term ethnobotany, would you tell us a bit about what that is? Sure. Ethnobotany is the study of the relationship between plants, people, and culture. And actually, we all know something about ethnobotany. If you uh, ask anyone, do you remember what your grandmother or grandfather or mom or dad gave you when you had a stomach ache when you were a little kid, what, what would you say? If I ask that question in Europe, I get answers like chamomile and uh -huh. garlic and peppermint, and Whoa. I ask that question in the United States, I get a bunch of over-the-counter products uh, if I ask younger people. If I asked older people, they, they go back to chamomile and things. Mm -hmm. If I ask the question in China, I get ginger and things like that. Uh, so you can see that we all have a relationship with plants, even at that very uh, basic level. And so what we do is we gather information like that from different cultures, indigenous cultures, both uh, here in New York City, where there are 800 different languages spoken, believe wow. it or not, and uh, some of the most remote parts of the world. Uh, two days ago, I was on a small island called Tana in Vanuatu, uh, close to Fiji and New Guinea, um, totally cut off from the outside world, um, thankfully, um, and just learning about all these new plants that new to me, at least, mm -hmm. that people were using in their daily lives. So ethnobotanists study that relationship between plants and people, particularly as related to culture. Well, when you asked me the question, I immediately thought of over-the-counter things. Mm -hmm. But a, a lot of the over-the-counter preparations are plant-derived or were once plant-derived and then synthesized it wouldn't be good for an upset stomach, but, you know, the first thing I think of is aspirin, mm -hmm. which originally came from willows. Well, if you, if you went into your pharmacist's uh, store and sort of jumped over the counter and started grabbing things, I don't recommend that, by the way. There's a, <laughs> one, in, there's a one in four chance that anything you would grab had its origin in a plant. And that's pretty astonishing. 25% of our prescription pharmaceuticals come from plants and a lot of our over-the-counter drugs. By the way, what I was given was Coke syrup. And that wasn't made from Coca-Cola, I imagine. Yes, yes, Coca-Cola syrup. Oh, really? Yeah, it used to come in sort of a pure form that you could right. mix with a little water. Or with, with the carbonated water, and yep, then you'd have yep. Coca-Cola. Yeah, and that was great for a stomachache. That's what I remember, anyway. 
Well, I, 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 and there's no way of knowing how many things have not yet been discovered in the West that you're the kinds of things that you're discovering. But I, I'll bet there's many, many, many things out there that we don't know about yet. Yes, in fact, uh, if you just look at plants, Ken, uh, it's estimated that we might have another 40, 50,000 species uh, remaining to be discovered around the world. And that's pretty astonishing. You know, in some ways, we know more about the surface of moon, the moon than the botany of, the, of Earth. You know, right. it's, it's right. so going into places, um, these remote places, there's, there's so much to learn, um, and what we do is is publish books on uh, on not only the plant diversity that's found in a region, and in my case, I'm a tropical botanist, so in a tropical region, but also uh, what their uses are. And in some cases, we write books on primary health care through plants, on others, just general ethnobotany, you know, plants for food or uh, construction or clothing so it's a it's an absolutely fascinating profession well you're you're making me think of how unfortunately ignorant uh, many Americans are that and if you really go all the way we wouldn't be alive without plants and so many people don't don't think about that you know there's nothing to eat there's nothing to breathe we real we all need plants stand up for your roots <laughs> Well, your book is 500 fantastic pages, and it's got it's also very beautiful. And there's so much about all different herbs, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But you you're writing about making cleaning preparations and fragrance and decor and pet care and dyeing and smudging. And I have to ask you, what is smudging? Uh, smudging is um, is um, using dried, mostly dried herbs or resins heating them, and purifying the environment in which you are. Uh, people have written entire books on the properties of smoke, for example, and mm -hmm. it, it turns out that the earliest peoples felt that smoke was sacred and they could watch the smoke rise to the heavens where their spirits resided. So... Um, uh, I think we're pretty... We're, we're more... Uh, uh, aware of Native American sacred smudging properties in this country um, using different sages and other herbs, uh, rolling them up in a sort of cigar shape and not burning but uh, uh, lighting them and then letting them smolder and um, uh, uh, Native Americans uh, in particular would uh, purify uh, the area that they were in with a smudging um, uh, uh, ceremony. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like incense. Yes, exactly. Well, I think the, the part of the book that gardeners and even normal people are going to love is the A to Z encyclopedia of 180 of the most useful herbs from around the globe. And included in the book are recipes and growing tips, which is so important. And there's even garden designs. And I'm interested in hearing about some of your favorite herbs. Sure. Well, um, I, I've been gone now for two and a half weeks overseas, but just before I left, um, uh, we were having cold days and hot days mm -hmm. and 
practically snow and then tropical weather, and people were getting the flu. They were getting these colds from it. Uh, elderberry is a wonderful antiviral plant. Um, it has properties that just shut down the reproduction of virus, making that flu uh, that you have uh, of much shorter duration with fewer symptoms. So I think elderberry is a, is a perfectly underappreciated herb. In this case, a fruit. You would use the fruits. Um, for me, chamomile is a miracle. Um, it's an anti-inflammatory, and when you do get that stomach ache, a cup of chamomile tea stops the spasm in the stomach. Um, it reduces the inflammation. Uh, it's a great tea to drink before you go to sleep. It's very relaxing. And best of all, when you have uh, conjunctivitis or tired eyes or redness, you can pull that tea bag out of your cup, the chamomile tea bag, wait a couple of seconds, and put it directly on each eye hmm. uh, for a minute or two, and it'll get rid of some of that redness. Uh, again, wait a minute, you know, before so you... So it's not hot. <laughs> so it's not boiling, you know. Um, but it's, it's, it's excellent for that. Uh, where I was in Vanuatu, kava is one of the most important plant medicines or plant drugs in this case. Uh, it's, it's, it's an anxiolytic. It reduces anxiety, and so many tens of millions of Americans have anxiety, uh, and we take a lot of uh, uh, pharmaceuticals and, and other uh, uh, self-medications for that, where a German study, uh, many German studies years ago showed that uh, kava can suspend this feeling of anxiety um, uh, in the same way and at the same kind of um, uh, effect as the Valium-class drugs, the diazepam or oxazepam-class of drugs. The uh, muscle relaxers. Yeah, yeah. So that's a fascinating plant. I think uh, for the skin, we're now full-blown into summer, and people are getting skin irritations and rashes. Uh, the flowers and leaves of calendula are excellent for uh, treating skin problems. Um, one of my favorites is passion flower. Uh, passion flower, the leaves, and to some degree the fruits are, are great for uh, helping you fall asleep. Um, they, they, they'll help you just sort of kick back after a hard day and forget all those problems and you go right to bed. Well, and how do you ingest that? Oh, as a tea. Uh -huh. Although I found uh, that eating a uh, I was in uh, Costa Rica once at a friend's uh, farm, and we had a lot of passion flower juice. And uh, boy, everybody went to sleep very, very <laughs> well that night. And in fact, passion flower seems to impact our dreams as well, promoting more vivid dreams, more colorful dreams. And I remember sitting around the breakfast table and people saying, "You know, it really is fun here in the tropics. I had the most wonderful dreams." Yeah. I said, well, it was the excess of passion flower juice that you drank. 
Well, I'm uh, sure in the in the book, and I should mention the book again, uh, Rodale's 21st Century Herbal by Dr. Michael J. Balick, who is, I'm speaking with, and uh, he's telling us about some of his favorite things. And uh, when you talk about tea, well, first of all, I use black tea for burns. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever heard of that. And I don't know where I first started doing that, but I'll take a tea bag and when it cools off, I'll just put it on a burn on my finger or something and wrap the string mm-hmm. around. And it, it's cooling and soothing, but I think maybe it might have some actual medicinal properties that it seems to help me with, with burns. But tea is, would you call that an infusion? When you make um, tea, when you steep something, I mean, how are the different ways that we use, that we get the, the good things out of these uh, potential curatives? Sure. Um, well, again, in the um, in the remote parts of the Pacific, where I just came from, people chew the herbs and then actually put them on their skin. Um, or swallow them directly. We don't do too much of that here. Uh, You can make uh, alcoholic uh, preparations of herbs by steeping the herbs, chopped herbs, in the alcohol and then uh, um, sort of filtering out the the pieces of herb that's left. Uh, You can make teas. I'm a big fan of teas. Mm -hmm. Um, And things like kava, by the way, if you put it in boiling water, the beneficial compounds are deactivated by heat. So, um, and of course, you don't want to drink green tea from boiling water. You you just have to um, be aware of of uh, the level of heat. Um, you know when you make these products, uh, you can infuse them into uh, oils and fats and use them externally. Uh, making a sort of skin cream. Uh, there's lots of different ways that we talk about in how to make preparations. And what I really like in making your own things um, is that you can control the chemical compounds that are in them. I, I ask my students to do an experiment. <clears throat> the skin, for example, is a big sponge. Uh, if you take peppermint oil and rub it between your thumb and forefinger, uh, and keep that hand away from your nose, uh, maybe 40 seconds later you'll taste the peppermint in your mouth. Wow. And what that means is that um, uh, it's gone through the capillaries in your fingers and into the blood vessels and circulate through the heart, and then you feel it in the back of your throat. Uh, You can do the same with garlic by rubbing it on your feet, and then you'll... (laughs) taste it in your mouth, but when I'm, you know, teaching or demonstrating, it's easier to do peppermint. I would say. But but the point is that if, you know, I'm about to hop on a subway, and I hold that railing as I go down into the station, and I know that that's been cleaned with something, you know, and that something ends up in your body. Or when I see folks walking in the city barefoot, you know, they're, they're two sponges that are just absorbing everything on the grass or on the sidewalk. And, and the same thing with body creams and shampoos and lotions and 
uh, it's just your skin is a sponge, and you have to be mindful about what you want in your bloodstream. Well, the, now you're making me think of being a gardener and touching soil, and there's so many good things in soil and so many not good things in soil. And a lot of gardeners I know get fungal infections from soil, from working mm-hmm. in the soil a, a year after year. But we we still do it, and I I wear gloves whenever I can. Uh, are do you actually grow any of these plants yourself? Do you have a garden? I have a very small garden. I live in a little townhouse condominium, and I have a bunch of things in pots and a and a, a, a few things in the ground that I harvest. And I think the point is for urban dwellers here in New York City or around the country, even uh, you can grow things on your windows and your homes and your terrace if the if the terrace will support the weight of the clay pots and soil. You can grow them out front or in the back. Uh, I like growing things in pots so I can control them a little bit better. Uh, you mean control them if they're mint and they're vigorous or give them yes. what they need? <laughs> I got back from my field trip and Saturday morning I went out in the garden and, and it looked like a war between the mints I have several species of mints and then all my perennials, and I spent much of Saturday just ripping out mint that had grown in two and a half, three weeks. So I do like to put stuff in pots when it's aggressive, you know, and when it's going to declare war on its neighboring plants. Yep, yep. Well, peppermint, of course, well, all the mints have wonderful fragrances, uh, and there are so many, and they're all, to me, they're all different. I'm very attuned to to fragrance or smells which is a kind of a blessing and a curse depending on where you are but uh, as you're talking about this i'm wondering about those chemicals that are in plants for example uh, you probably know what eugenol is yes and there's so many different plants that have that fragrance of of uh, like a what we call pinks carnations the dianthus fragrance and it's also in allspice and other things it, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me that those chemicals are in different plants and well i, I guess i'm leading to an idea as i'm even saying this that the you know why are those fragrances in plants well there are many many theories about why chemical compounds uh what the purpose they serve in plants there are probably over 150,000 different chemicals that have been isolated from the plant kingdom, the higher plants, the ones with flowers and fruits and seeds. And current thinking is that they're sort of a defense system against predators. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that if a fungus starts spreading in your garden, um, the mints probably aren't going to get much of that fungus because... Um, uh, mint is a great antifungal, uh, and it sort of defends from fungus. Um, but uh, predation, the same way, there, uh, an insect starts chewing on a plant, tastes something that's not palatable, and flies to the next plant where um, the the you know the taste is more tolerable. So, a defense system. Now, one of the earliest theories. And people have written books about why plants have chemicals. One of the earliest theories was that plants were like mammals, were like organisms, that they had to have an excretion system Hmm. to get rid of things from their body. So uh, the chemicals that 
poured out of the leaves and uh, exuded from the stems. It was sort of the plant's way of getting rid of toxins, just like we. Now that's of course been debunked, but <laughs> you know they're probably if you look at um, uh, the books that have been written on that, it, you know there are probably a dozen theories over the years. But mostly we go with uh, natural defense. Well, now you're making me think of you, you've. I know you read in the book that you're interested. You're you were influenced by Gerard's herbal, and you're making me also remember the doctrine of signatures. Yes. If you could just talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, a physician botanist named Paracelsus in in the uh, 16th century came up with a theory uh, that actually went back much earlier was that like cured like. So if you go to our amazing herbal collection here at the New York Botanical Garden, we probably have one of the finest in the world, and you look at some of those early books, those early herbals, you'll see, for example, uh, uh, plants with roots that look like snakes are used to treat snake bite mm. or a scorpioid thyme, uh, a sort of curled inflorescence of a borage family uh, that looks like the curled tail of a scorpion uh, used to treat insect bites. Um, plants that look like that they had heart-shaped um, leaves used to treat the cardiovascular system. And, and so uh, the doctrine of signatures said that nature put its properties in the form of the plant um, or the animal in that case, and that uh, like cured like. Now, a friend of mine, Bradley Bennett from uh, Florida International University, took issue with that and <laughs> in a paper a number of years ago wrote that maybe, just maybe, this was more a mnemonic that when people found a plant that was good for treating hepatitis that happened to have a yellow stem, uh, this is the way they remembered it, that uh, yellow treats hepatitis or red treats blood disorders. Mm. So was it the way things were discovered or was it the way things were taught? Uh, two different issues. Well, we have a lot of plants still today that we know of by those names like lungwort and hepatica for liver and uh, sanguinaria for blood, uh, and we call it bloodroot. Yeah. Uh, so th that's there's a legacy there that's been passed down. I want to make sure that I we haven't skipped any of your other favorite plants before we go, because we only have just about 30 seconds left. But is there anything else you'd like to tell us about? Sure, chocolate, my oh, favorite herb. chocolate. It's a wonderful medicine, great for the cardiovascular system, a square of 85% or higher cocoa content chocolate in the morning is a great way to start the day. It's also excellent for elevating mood. So yeah, I would go yeah. with chocolate as my all-time favorite. As your all-time favorite. And we all, we all can agree with that. Uh, I have been speaking with Mike Balick, uh, and he's the author of a new wonderful and beautiful book, Rodale's 21st Century Herbal. We'll have links on the Kendra's Real Dirt page to many things, including the New York Botanical Garden, and also some of the papers that Dr. Balick has written. On this 
incredible, fascinating subject. And in this case, we can say you can try this at home. If you get the book, though, you'll you'll learn about things that you can do and things maybe that you shouldn't do because we can't just go out and say graze your garden there's too many things out there and maybe some things that have even been sprayed so it's it's not a carte blanche to eat everything but there are plenty of things that you can do and there's recipes in the book as i mentioned but there's recipes for dinner <laughs> not just for for concoctions uh, and thank you so much again for being my guest today it's been terrific Wonderful to be with you, and um, I hope you have a great herb-filled summer. I hope your garden's doing well and that, that it's overflowing with nature's most powerful plants. Yeah, I'll be looking at them differently, I think, after we've talked. <laughs> Thanks again. Please join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt Gardening 2.0. See you then.